Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. What I also recommend, however, is Oscar Wilde's The Importance of Being Earnest. Um, Oscar Wilde is one of my personal patron saints, so I'm always happy to see uh, a production of one of his plays, particularly when every character in the cast is played by just two people. I'm joined in the studio by David Woods and John Haynes, who are performing The Importance of Being Earnest at the Malthouse Theatre, previewing from Friday the 14th. Gentlemen, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. Hello. Thank you. Lovely to have you back. Now, um, in 2008, you were performing uh, this production uh, in Sydney uh, at Belvoir. And, uh, David, you said, I'm getting sick of the audience. Do I really want to keep being a jester for these wealthy people who can come and uh, afford to come and see our shows? The only thing I want to do is mildly piss them off and poke fun at their existence. And, John, you said, I feel sick at the thought of having to perform the play this evening. So... Why are you doing it again? Oh, my goodness. Uh, thanks um, for digging that out. <laughs> that was cruel. That guy, he knew he was bagging us. Um, he did it just just as we were about to go on stage for our sort of eighth show of the week. and um, At the end of a three-week run. Yeah, you know. Um, it, yeah, at that point, you're just running. You're running on adrenaline and this kind of crazy addiction to laughter. And yeah. so... One always wants to, you know, keep up one's habit in that <laughs> field, I find. But yeah, you know, they were that was intense. Um, at that stage, I guess we we'd probably done it about three hundred times, and we just come off the back of a season of our own play, Tough Time, Nice Time, two guys in a bathtub, which you performed at Melbourne Fringe. We uh, did, yeah, yeah, oh, and, yeah. yeah. That's right. And I think it was this feeling nobody wanted to give you know original work ago it was all about let's go back to the classics let's just let's just stay with comfort food that kind of thing and um so that frustration you know expressed some of that sort of disappointment that people weren't giving our work a go and we're just wanting the sort of safe you know the, the nice um known things um, why are we doing it again? We were asked to do it. Um, I mean, we, we did, uh, you know, keep it in rep there until 2011 and then put it into storage. But just the fact that we put it into storage implies that we were kind of thinking, well, we can't chuck it away. <laughs> it's too valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a job. It's, um, you know, we've, we've managed to eke out an existence in independent theatre for 27 years. Um, and we'll do whatever we can to keep practicing you know um Mm. take commercial tv work or um you know act in a a sort of main stage show with a a main stage company or something do Um, a hellman's mayonnaise hands advert yeah or fiat vans you know we're we're giving them more we should be paying (laughs) but we should we should say though the reason we did it in the first place was because we wanted to reach a bigger audience that's Mm. why we did this yeah, and then drag them back. And drag them back. Drag to them our, back. <laughs> that wasn't working. To our work. I don't think it's worked, has it? No, it didn't no, work. It's, it's, it's uh, a, yeah. The experiment failed. But we, we are trying the experiment again um, in that we, we're, we're ever hopeful that uh, even just a few enlightened people will give 
new original work go on the back of seeing us do our thing with this classic kind of measure us up against this work i think also we have moved moved on quite a long way from that original production it was you know directed by jude kelly it's become a lot more playful over the years we're, we're still you know exploring comedic avenues that we didn't know existed mm. and surprising ourselves and you know going too far so that's i think how we keep it yeah. alive yeah um, it's sort of we've, we've been more bold with the deconstruction of it this time um you yeah. know with with respect to jude's um approach you know which we've retained everything but we've just sort of let it crack um yeah, in yeah. a few more places well she didn't and, say when she left you know this is yours now take it take it away yeah so. <laughs> <laughs> does it still feel like comfort food um, we'll see when the audiences come. Um, we'll see if they start saying some of the lines for us before we can, <laughs> yeah. which has, has happened actually in the in the past. And, and cheering um, um, particular little routines or speeches <laughs> and so on. Um, but yeah, I guess the ultimate measure will be. Uh, it already is sort of in in progress in that we're doing our, our show. Die, die, die. Old people die. Which is what well, our intention was that that would be our pension plan. Um, we would keep doing this comedy by, um, you know, a slapstick comedy for 120-year-olds when we were actually 120. That was our, our way of, you know, um, deferring our problem with having any sort of reliable retirement pension. Um, but uh, it's not worked um, mm. in that um, people are just aren't booking it. They think it's too edgy um, or too... Um, too, too scared of the title yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> the, uh, you know normally we tour a show well like with Ernest you know hundreds and hundreds of times but um and keep things in repertory for up to seven years or so um but this one you know it it's been very hard to sell the, the new work we launched it at Arts House um you know last year uh, oh sorry 2018 um and then, um, you know, normally we'd be doing sort of pack tours in the UK, maybe six weeks worth, that kind of thing. And um, we've come up with more like six nights. And um, it doesn't feel like the time for that show to be out and about. And so we think, well, we have to sort of eat, you know, we have to keep our work going. And um, so when the invitation came in, I thought, oh, yes, let's do this for a bit while the mood is this way. And we'll subvert it from within, you know, but it, it feels very much like the, the kind of bouffon approach that Philip Gaulier has of, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the sort of underclass do pretty plays for the wealthy people. Um, and uh, I should say that doesn't include that brilliant Wednesday afternoon when they do the free shows there for anybody who wants to come in. I think they're brilliant. But, um, yeah, we were feeling a bit like we were those kind of bouffant characters playing to the the wealthy class and just treading this little delicate line. And they weren't meant to know that. <laughs> and that, that journalist bagged us. And wasn't he on our case again recently? Um, you know, didn't I think when the program was launched, uh, the same journalist popped up again saying... Oh, he Oh, look at my article there. And that's maybe <laughs> why it came up on your radar. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and having digs at sort of just doing safe plays, but we, we're doing we're, we're yeah we're being more subtle now about our our kind of um, irreverence, I suppose, or maybe not. <laughs> maybe we're being more expert. I don't know. Mm. Uh, we're having fun anyway. That's the main thing, and I'm sure yeah. the audiences will too, whether they they get the uh, referencing or not. Oh. Yeah. Now, John, let's talk about 
the play itself for a moment, the importance mm. of being earnest. It's it's um, it's a, a, a witty comedy. Uh, when it was kind of first staged, uh, critics seemed perturbed by its kind of lack of depth and its lack of uh, the fact that it uh, it didn't have an important message, that it was a relatively frivolous production. Mm. You, uh, it seems in some ways that a lot of contemporary theatre is also kind of very quite serious, quite uh, wanting to explore um, no race issues, class issues, um, Australia's attitude towards uh, refugees in the world. There's a lot going on in contemporary theatre. Is it time for uh, a kind of just a, a light social comedy? Um, I think probably there is an appetite, yes, for, um, for that. But I don't think it's quite... I don't think it's as shallow as, you might, as it might appear at first. You know, it's, it's a sort of forensic um dissection of of uh, contemporary manners you know and, and and social climbing i mean the irony is of course wilde himself was a kind of a social climber although he was probably born into the um upper middle classes you know his father was a surgeon to queen victoria and his mother was a nationalist poet and he grew up in a very bohemian household but he always wanted to he had, you know he didn't he, he didn't belong to the nobility and, you know, became besotted with this aristocrat, Lord Alfred Douglas. So at the same time as him wanting to puncture this um, this aristocratic upper, upper realm, he, he also wanted to belong to it. And I think that's, in a way, was, was the background to this play, that he, he wanted to send up these people without them necessarily realising it, or maybe just, you know, at the moment they were about to put their the mouthful into their... Well, you know, they just realise it what's the end of, on the end of their fork just before they're about to, to eat, eat, eat it. Um, mm. uh, so I think, you know, he was actually quite quite clever. I think it was probably um, more uh, effective at the time than it is now. I mean, there are some lines in the play that even now have the tendency to shock, a couple of which we've actually got rid of because they, they, they seem a bit too um, close to the bone, don't it, they? Uh, uh, it's vindictive and offensive. There's one about... about uh, What's, it, what's that one about? Ill, about health is the primary duty duty in life. Uh, it's ableist. Um, it, it's an ableist, an ableist line from um, Bracknell, and she's horrible enough without that in, yeah. in a controlling manner. So and I we, also, sorry, yeah. Uh, I mean, we just two days ago, I thought, no, we don't need to do that line, actually. Yeah, and I have one as Algernon, which <laughs> David started commenting on in, in, in redacted ad, ad, ad- <laughs> adlibbing about, which is which my line is um, the only way to behave to a woman is to make love to her if she's pretty and to someone else if she's plain. Uh, which I remember got a gasp when I did that at the Barbican in 2005. So I, I've been toying so, with saying redacted over the top of it while he's doing it. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's enough... I think, you know, you think about... For me, what's clever about the play is the way it, balance, it, it manages to juggle those two things, keep the two balls in the air mm. of, um, you know, for those who, you know, perhaps can decode some of the language what's a Cecily and what's a Bunburyist and so on, yeah. you know, they can have a, a really thrilling evening. <laughs> um, having, but at the same time, their heteronormative neighbours will be having a thrilling evening imagining the sort of playing out of a rom-com. Um, perhaps a, you know, a, a, a Trump fan revelling in his gaslighting of the general public uh, will see... You know, another championing of that same behaviour in the in the deception of the two main characters, mm. um, while somebody who is, you know, a, a, a hater of that kind of behaviour, um, will enjoy it being ruthless, mercilessly sort of 
uh, parodied. So, and I, I think everyone has a good time. And that, mm. you know, it's quite rare that we hear complaints about this. I guess the complaints we had were um, something we were just talking about before that we didn't go far enough. Um, so we've we've taken that as an invitation this time to um, to do yeah, that. Yeah, it was almost like people wanted what is, what is the ridiculousness take on Oscar Wilde, but you know you can't you can't really have a battle with Oscar Wilde. I mean, you know, the language is perfect already. You can just you can just interpret it. Hmm. Now, um, speaking of interpretations, uh, one of the best uh, kind of. Uh, straightforward, more traditional takes on the importance of being earnest that I ever saw was by the, the company Wild Rice up in Brisbane a few years ago. I was roaring with laughter, enjoying mm. it, and then they suddenly made me weep. Uh, the character of Miss Prism, uh, uh, there's, there's, I won't say what the scene is for people who don't know the play, but there was this wonderful moment of genuine pathos uh, and and uh, empathy and sympathy, kind of within this kind of uh, kind of charmingly staged comedy, uh, and I believe you're rather fond of the character of Miss Prism. I did say you probably read that in a recent interview. I did say that without really thinking too much about it. Um, perhaps I was asked the question, "What you know, which is your favourite character?" And I, uh, I think, yeah, maybe I was attracted to the sort of that that exactly that. There's, there's a sort of potential strand of melancholy there and this this secret past and this thing in the closet or the wardrobe um <laughs> or the or the uh unspeakable bag um i don't know i think i had seen interpretations of uh, of miss prism that had, that had touched me that, that mm. that's all and in fact the, the reason i i mean i got into i was a wild nut really when i was about 13 or 14 and i became addicted to playing a particular radio bbc radio version uh, I think it was 1974 with Fabia Drake playing Lady Bracknell and Richard Pascoe, Barbara Lee Hunt, and then uh, I I'd only looked this up recently because I had I had always thought it was Celia Johnson from Brief Encounter playing Miss Prism, but it wasn't. It was an actress called Sylvia Coleridge, who was very very touching, and that sort of her tone somehow stayed in my the back of my head. Mm. So it's just a, probably a remnant of of that being touched by that recording and the pathos that this particular actress brought to it. I mean, you can play that part in so many different ways i saw a recent production with david suchet in uh in which she was played by uh, by michelle dotrice who used to play michael crawford's wife in the sitcom uh, some mothers do have them and she played it very very differently from uh, you know like a jolly hockey, hockey stick sort of very 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 lively character and i didn't feel the pathos there so much so yeah i think if there is a ridiculous mistake on it is to try and find the humanity in all the characters um, you know, we come really are, I mentioned Gaulier and so on, where I dabbled with a few courses um, and people would refer to us as Gaulier-like or mm. whatever. But actually our training was in method, classical, uh, straight acting as, as straight as, well, not, they say it's method, you know, Stanislavski going into method. That's our approach. And so we wanted to find the humanity in all our characters. And that's even though we, we you know, our company style is pushing the, the physical performance to an absolute extreme, we're still trying to fill it with a believable character that you care about, you know. And, and so many of these Algernons over the years are just sort of dismissible because they're so in their head um, that if you don't feel his pain, you, you're not going to love him or care about him when things seem uh, that they're going to fall mm. apart. I mean, it's quite a challenge to inject any of these, these characters with... Um 
real human emotions and you know expect the audience to connect with them because of the way we're presenting it these con- you know these constant quick changes as soon as you know you just might be getting attached to somebody they change it to somebody else mm. so <laughs> that is quite difficult i think yeah I'm looking forward to seeing how it's done. The importance of being earnest is previewing uh, from tomorrow uh, on also Saturday and Monday and then opening on Tuesday the 18th of February. Uh, you can uh, jump online and book tickets, malthousetheatre.com.au. Tickets are from 35 bucks, and it's uh, Mondays to Wednesdays at 6.30pm, Thursdays through to Saturdays at 7.30pm and Sundays at 5. malthousetheatre.com.au you to see the ridiculous production of The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde. I've been chatting with John Haynes and David Woods. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Triple R. Uh, and my next guest has joined us in the studio. Victor Griss is the curator at the Cunahan Gallery in Brunswick, located in the old Brunswick Town Hall, 233 Sydney Road. Uh, and Victor joined us to talk not only about the current kind of uh, slate of exhibitions, but the fact that there is a new gallery space. Victor, that's rather exciting. It is, and good morning, Richard. Um, uh, and I would like to acknowledge that the Cunahan Gallery in Brunswick is on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Um, yes, we've got a, uh, a brand new space that opened uh, just on Saturday afternoon to a uh, great reception, a great vibe. Um, it's been a long time coming and uh, we now finally have a window onto Sydney Road and from Sydney Road so uh, people can really uh, see us now. We're much more visible than we used to be. Which is an important thing for any kind of gallery to be accessible for people to demystify the process of visiting galleries as well because I think for some people the, the, I don't know, the white cube environment, the, the Maybe the, the slightly hushed or reverent atmosphere can be a little off-putting. So if people walking past on Sydney Road can look in, see the work and be curious uh, to be drawn in, that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. And um, while I guess uh, we, we have two sides of a white cube that we've added, two long walls, um, the, the big window is the big break in that. And we've already seen um, from the get-go the uh, the visible wow factor Um the, the open mouths at the at the window as people look in and wonder what this place is that the, has perhaps been a little less conspicuous previously. And it's been one of those things that um, uh, since my tenure began at the Coonahan, I've been very passionate about because we're in such a great spot uh, otherwise for public transport and in the heart of Brunswick and uh, cafe culture, you name it, we're in such a terrific spot. It's just been trying to find that little uh, extra... Uh, visibility so people really do know we're there now. How long have the plans for this new and third gallery space at the Coonahan been kind of in development? That's a good question Richard. I think it was actually spoken of first about 10 years ago so that's how long it's sort of that's when the seed was planted. Um, the, the space that we've moved into was previously a shared occupancy space so there was uh, a number of challenges uh, in terms of the, um, the ownership of that space and um, uh, that's over time that has become somewhat easier. It was previously occupied by the youth services arm of Moreland City Council and uh, that's now that more, the youth services uh, division has a has a, a brand spanking shiny new facility in Coburg called Oxygen. Uh, things, uh, the, the way started to clear for that and uh, 
Uh, and of course, there were other factors too about about capital uh, for that to happen as well, the, the demolitions in that space and the and the uh, refurbishment. Yeah. Now the space has been opened uh, with one of three current exhibitions, and That's right. the exhibition in the new space is focused on female artists from the collection of uh, Moreland City Council. Yes. So um, the exhibition is called Focus, uh, and uh, part of the idea of for the new space is that it actually will uh, periodically be showing Moreland's uh, growing art collection. Uh, so um, the uh, timing of the opening fell really nicely in terms of its lead into International Women's Day and we thought what better way to launch the space than with a celebration of uh, women artists in the collection. And so we've got a host of um, new acquisitions, very, very recent. In fact, some of them were literally being framed the week the uh, the, the show was being installed and uh, also some uh, some works just from the last few years and some other key works from the collection, which includes a lot of local artists, uh, a lot of First Nations artists and, of course, the content of which you can imagine has that uh, the Cunahan theme or the Cunahan vibe of political activism, social commentary, uh, social justice. Now, uh, there's two other exhibitions on as well, so uh, Histrionic and Screen Time. Talk to us about the the process of curating uh, a show. How long does um, just one exhibition take from conception through to presentation? So Histrionic and Screen Time came to us through our applications process. So um, the two spaces, uh, the existing spaces in the gallery... um, uh, for exhibitions which come through our annual call out. So in that sense, um, usually six to 12 months in advance, we have an idea of what that what the ex- exhibitions will be. Um, and then the exhibition, we have an exhibition committee which uh, essentially looks at which uh, exhibitions might work best together. And so in this case, Screen Time and Histrionic fit very well together because they were both, in a sense, uh, commentaries on screen culture in one way or another with histrionic being sort of about online screen culture and uh, screen time being about surveillance uh, surveillance culture I guess Um, so they fit very well together and then um, uh, and then once they're into the gallery they take about a week to set up so and that's in consultation with the artist we're there to support them some artists have a very clear vision about what they want to do. Others um, uh, have the panic moments, and that's what we're there for. Um, but, yeah, typically a week to actually set the shows up. What about when you have a panic moment? I have great staff around me, so I'm very lucky. Um, I, I do have panic moments, perhaps not necessarily curatorially, but for, for other reasons. But, yeah, we've got a great team at the gallery, um, and they're all very passionate and professional, so... Um, I've got really great sport there. Great. Now, I'm interested in the the kind of, I guess, the conversation between uh, those two uh, exhibitions you mentioned, histrionic and screen time. The the fact that histrionic is uh, the, the the kind of hyper connected world that we live in. Screen time is the surveillance culture that is fed out of that uh, hyper connectivity. How deliberately and how consciously were you kind of in kind of making sure that these exhibitions were almost effectively in dialogue with one another, given that they are uh, kind of uh, so closely positioned together? Yeah, look really closely, I think, on these ones. Um, uh, the, there's 
um, and even actually that they, you know, in some ways kind of informed how we even looked at the uh, collection show as well. There was actually an influence, sort of a, a ripple effect onto the collection exhibition as well with um, the way those exhibitions work. And in fact, if you sort of walk from the front of the, gal- the new space to the, the rear space, you're looking at a progression from uh, sort of um, inert images into active images. Uh, so I think we, when we looked at histrionic and screen time, we were looking at that idea of interplay um, and also about uh, looking at, uh, which is in, in the case of histrionic, is very much about looking at images and and screen time was very much about being looked at. Um, uh, and kind of a kind of a currency of images, I think, as well. And to return to focus, uh, given that uh, it's new and recently acquired and key works by women from the Moreland Art Collection, tell us a little bit more about the Moreland Art Collection itself. How extensive is it? So the collection now has about 350 uh, objects in it, um, but it has accelerated perhaps in about the last five years. It's grown by about 100 objects. And we've actually been really lucky to receive a lot of donations to the collections in recent history, which has been a real boon. Um, and in fact, a couple of the works in the collection uh, was just that have been we're showing in focus are works donated by members of the local arts community, which is fantastic. Um, two works by Joy Hester, and I noticed I know you just had guests on from Heidi, and in fact, um, we're, uh, we'll be loaning one of those works to Heidi for the upcoming. Um, uh, Joy Hester exhibition that'll be coming up there. Um, we've had other uh, donations from artists and other members of the arts community as well. So, uh, so in our current exhibition, we've got a, a wonderful work by a local artist Helga Groves, which was which she donated to the collection uh, an animation. Uh, we've got artworks from Wendy Black, um, who was part of the Red Letter Press and. Uh, she donated some wonderful series of uh, Antarctic cards, uh, which were sort of pro- pre- pre-internet protest, uh, uh, a press media kind of uh, agitprop. Um, and uh, we've also uh, just got a wonderful, we've, a wonderful purchase for the collection was by Brunswick-based artist Hoda Afshar. Um, so she's Iranian-born and she's taken a, Beautiful photograph of uh, former Manus detainee Baruz Bushani, and um, uh, so that features on the front cover of our six monthly program, and that also adorns now the the front facade of the gallery as well, which is a really nice way for Moreland to say that even if um, the Australian government doesn't welcome. Baruz, we certainly do. Yeah. Um, it's a really striking image, kind of uh, moody, haunted, black and white, almost Christ-like in some ways. Absolutely, yeah. It definitely has that quality, and it's uh, it was it. People were really gravitating towards it at the opening. The artist was there too, um, which was wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's one of two portraits of Beirut she took. There's another one she took, which was front onto camera. This one's kind of a three quarter view. But as you say, it des- def- definitely has a kind of a uh, almost religious or sort of biblical quality to it when you when you see it. Yeah. Just before I let you go, Victor. Uh, Earlier in the conversation, you kind of referenced the the kind of uh, political kind of 
uh, leanings or nature or influence of the, some of the works uh, presented at the Cunahan Gallery. For people who aren't familiar with Noel Cunahan, the, the artist who the gallery is named after, why is he considered such an important Australian artist of the 20th century? Well, I think he was atypical um, during during his life in terms of uh, the uh, the art scene. Uh, he was he was actively he was he was a member of the Communist Party. He was a card carrying member of the Communist Party, and he was um, very strident in, in his political and, and social views, which was reflected in in, in his artwork. Um, uh, so I think I think. That's that's that was the difference. I think there was a lot of other you know aesthetic concerns going on in in the art world at that time, but he, he was much more about um, much more about people. Uh, so I think that is a an ongoing character of uh, of the types of work that we show at the gallery. And I should mention too at the opening too, Noel's surviving son Mick Cunahan um, gave a, a really wonderful. Uh, 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 speech about not Noel Cunahan but Pat Cunahan, his wife, um, which was in keeping with the very in keeping with the event because she opened the original gallery in 1999, only a few years before she passed away. But Mick acknowledged the um, the inestimable contribution she made, really, because uh, Noel would never have had the career that he had without her, which it was um, both because of her financial support through uh, enabling him to um, to be the artist that he was, but also the intellectual influence that she had on him. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I think that's really important in the in the ongoing story of the Cunahan and in the context of the exhibitions we have on at the moment. Absolutely. And uh, if you want to experience the ongoing story of the Cunahan Gallery, including its new exhibition space, the gallery is located at 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick. Uh, it's open Wednesdays to Saturdays, 11am to 5pm, Sundays from 1 till 5pm. Entry is free. More info at moreland.vic.gov.au forward slash Cunahan hyphen gallery. Or you could just Google it. Kuna, the Cunahan Gallery in Brunswick, as I said, 233 Sydney Road uh, in the old Brunswick Town Hall. Victor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Richard. And can I just very quickly just say that if you're interested, we have floor talks on at 2.30pm this Saturday as well, if you'd like to hear from the artists in the shows. Fantastic. Get along to that. Thank you, Richard. Absolutely. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Right now, my final guest for the morning joins us in the studio. Playwright Kim Ho has written The Great Australian Play, uh, which is the name of his play. Uh, will it be a great Australian play? Only time will tell. Kim, welcome to Triple R. Why write something with such a cheeky title? Thanks for having me, Richard. Um, yeah, well, main, first of all, it was for the SEO. I wanted um, people to associate my name on Google uh, with, with great Australian playwriting. Um, but primarily, uh, I started out trying to write a really, really earnest play. Um, this is when I was uh, at um, the VCA doing my Masters of Writing for Performance. Um, so I very much had in my head that um, I, I was going to do something capital I important. Um, and I stumbled upon this story uh, of Lassiter's Reef, um, which, uh, which is essentially a story of a gold expedition in 1930. I thought, this is it. This is my meal ticket to writing an important piece of Australian writing. And I realised I couldn't. Um, so the great Australian play is the uh, the kind of smouldering ruins of that attempt. <laughs> uh, I, it's just the sheer fact alone that you 
the 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 pressure on any playwright to write a significant work mm. uh, is clearly apparent. Uh, and I also like the fact that you've healthily acknowledged that yes, you have an ego and you want to make a landmark kind of statement in the Australian theatre sector, but you've also admitted your failure simultaneously. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, healthy ego, but also uh, kind of like healthy attitude towards life. Presumably. Yeah, yeah. I mean, halfway through studying, um, I. Uh, a play I'd written, Mirror's Edge, uh, won the Patrick White Award, which is administered by uh, Sydney Theatre Company. Um, so I was in this very, very odd position. Obviously, I was like thrilled and very surprised. Um, but now I was really worried and I'd been associated with one of the great Australian playwrights um, and uh, and people were really interested to see what I do next. Um, and without having had a proper independent debut or professional um, theatre debut anywhere, um, I uh, I was suddenly going, oh, I was feeling There's a lot of pressure. pressure. Yeah. yeah. To li- and yeah, something to a reputation to live up to before mm. you've developed properly for a, sure. a reputation. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of talk about, particularly for writers, like finding your voice, um, and I think it uh, it's something that you um, you can't engineer yourself. It's like you you just have to try it, but you don't know that when you're starting out. Um, so it's just this like, oh, okay, I bet I guess I better develop my voice, better um, create something important so that I'm associated with that. So let's talk about what you have ended up writing. As you said, you're kind of riffing off this idea of Lassiter's Reef. Uh, Some people may have heard of Lassiter and his claim that he found a massive gold reef out in the desert, which he then proceeded to lose or or misplace. Uh, And was he a fraudster? Well, yeah, I guess what drew me to it is uh, this story... The, the ambiguity in the story. So Lassiter convinces everyone in 1930 that he's found this reef. Um, it's the height of the Great Depression, so everyone's really, really um, excited to about this like possibility of, of um, financial kind of uh, financial panacea to their problems. Um, and then as soon as he, uh, as soon as the expedition goes out, uh, it becomes apparent that Lassiter hasn't been out into the desert um so he couldn't have found this reef if he can't make damper and he has never tasted kangaroo like it's just there's uh things don't add up um and i, I was finding this story really really uncanny um the the this this sense of like a guy leading people towards something that probably didn't exist and i felt like that um said something um that was like clear to me, but still out of reach about Australian culture. I couldn't put my finger on why I was drawn to the story, but I was. The one of the things that's kind of fascinating is that your, and again to refer back to the title, the the great Australian play, to you were seeking to excavate the myth of colonial Australia to write a contemporary story to, to reflecting upon its origins. Uh, was it also an opportunity to grapple with your own kind of relationship to Australia and with colonialism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, I've certainly... Um, my previous play, Mirror's Edge, was uh, in some way um, grappling with uh, a real story of Chinese tourists coming to a regional Victorian town and looking at, like, Chinese um, foreigners uh, visiting a, a town 
populated by white folk, but that town being on stolen indigenous land. And the three cultures kind of like grappling for, um, I guess, place um, on on that land. Um, And it was a very kind of earnest approach to um, looking at like cross-cultural conversation. Um, With this one, I was really interested in uh, turning my attention to my mum's side of the family, Um, I guess interrogating Um, my status as a non-Indigenous Australian um, with white heritage. Um, And I actually found that I had a literal family connection to this story. Um, So when I started researching, I found my great-grandfather was best friends with the leader of the Lassiter expedition, Fred Blakely. Um, And just... Uh, he convinced Blakely to write his version of the events and that manuscript became a family heirloom. I got a photocopy from my mum's cousin uh, and that used that as one of the inspirational texts to write this play. So it was initially a very kind of um, earnest uh, attempt to um, do justice to this story that had been passed down to me and then realising that I couldn't do the, um, I guess, my themes and my uh, artistic kind of desires um, uh, justice uh, if I didn't kind of blow the whole thing open. Yeah. So by blowing it open, one of the things you've written is you've written a meta-theatrical text uh, in which uh, a group of kind of of people, of artists, of storytellers, discover the story of Lassiter's Brief and set out to explore it for themselves. The premise is um, basically five screenwriting hacks um, have got some money from Screen Australia to retrace the Lassiter expedition in the Australian desert and find their creative gold. Um, So I I guess there's uh, three uh, strands, I suppose, um, going on. Lassiter in 1930 is trying to find his literal gold. Um, these screenwriters are trying to make it into some kind of um, the best version of that uh, story. And then me trying to sift through this information, trying to find my creative gold on top of that. Are you in the play yourself? Um, I can't. I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny, Richard. Um, uh, I think I- my voice is there, certainly. Um, and I think those five um, actors are, um, or five like screenwriters are very much um, fragments of, um, uh, I guess, my struggle to uh, come to terms with um, storytelling as a non-Indigenous Australian. Yeah. What happened to Lassiter, the, the real Lassiter who claims that he, and I love the fact that he's not even sure of the date he, he apparently found this kind of legendary gold reef. It was either 1897 or possibly 1911. Not yeah. quite sure. Yeah. Kind of what, but what happened to the real Lassiter? I think. Because in my memory, in my mind, I had this vague, for some reason, I think he rode off into the desert and was never seen again. But that could just be a fiction that I've kind of picked up. One of those things you think you know but you are completely misremembering the truth well there's a there's a point uh in the expedition where lassiter lassiter's team deserts him um and the only person he's stuck with uh is this random german dingo scalper who hold on wait a german dingo scalper yeah who just happens to um come out of the heat shimmer at some point um when all their uh 
trucks and planes crash and break. Um, this guy just turns up out of nowhere with a train of camels asking um, to buy into the expedition. Um, and this guy, uh, Paul Johns, is later found in London to be a, a Nazi saboteur. Um, so you've got this Nazi German dingo scalper um, and and Lassiter, the Australia's potentially Australia's biggest con man, going off, as you said, riding in uh, out into the desert. Um, the German comes back, and we have no idea what happens to Lassiter. Because um, we've they they found a body, but that body had teeth, and Lassiter has dentures, had dentures. So um, his body was never positively identified. I can see why you were attracted to this story. <laughs> it's uh, it felt like as soon as I started researching it, it felt like a story that I'd heard or, or that I'd known my whole life, and that uncanniness hasn't left me. Uh, that sense that um, that. I don't know, there's something about the DNA of Australia, of colonial Australia, in this story that's like distilled into um, the folly of this one expedition. If you've just tuned in, my guest is playwright Kim Ho. We're talking about his new work, The Great Australian Play, which is running from the 19th until the 29th at Theatre Works in St Kilda, uh, located at 14 Ackland Street. Uh, more info at www.theatreworks.org.au. Tell us about the, the cast that uh, has been pulled together for the production. Tell us about the creative team, because you're the writer. Now you have to entrust it to people yeah. to bring it to life. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a, a mammoth play. It goes for about two hours. Um, so it is really hefty, a great Australian play. Um, is there an interval? We Yes, we do have an interval. It's, um, you're, you're, all the tropes are there. So you can get, gonna... uh, yeah, some bubbly and a chock top. It's, it's perfect. Um, yeah, we've got a really, really terrific cast and crew. Um, the director, Sarah Lusty-Cavallari, directed an early reading of the work at the VCA. And we just clicked um, and really hit it off. Um, he's got a, a, an amazing kind of bonkers vision for the text. And, and we've really fed off each other the entire time, um, trying to, um, I guess, make... Uh, make it sharper, make the satire sharper, and and also, um, I guess, the emotional beats hit heavier. Um, we've got an incredible cast, uh, Tamara Bailey, uh, Sarah Fitzgerald, um, Sarumsa Suri Bin Saad, um, uh, Jessa Konchich and Daniel Fisher. Um, they're pretty incredible. Um, and they're basically taking uh, a very, very, um, uh, I guess... Like a, a text that's that's very wordy, um, and instilling it with such life and energy, um, it's it's been such a treat, kind of seeing it come to life. I'm looking forward to seeing it come to life myself. So uh, heading along to opening night next week. Now, just before we wrap up, Kim, back in 2017, you wrote a report about the lack of cultural diversity on Australian main stages. How much has the theatre landscape changed since you wrote that report, which was quite critical of the the main uh, kind of Australia's major theatre companies in terms of the lack of works uh, by people of colour uh, as directors, as mm. writers, as well as uh, in the kind of marketing collateral. Yeah, um, I don't have the. I haven't done a kind of um, comparative. Comp- yeah, comparative uh, report since, um, and I'd be hesitant to do that. Um, in terms of um, trying to categorise who constitutes person of colour and not. Um, But uh, I think there are promising signs. I think that um, mainstage... I I don't doubt that there's goodwill um, at all levels of... um, of Australian performing arts um, to, I guess, diversify. Um, But 
one thing I was thinking recently was while we have um, pretty much all white um, artistic directors um, of our main theatre companies across Australia, um, and there's scrutiny on that uh, and, and criticism, um, I don't know if the same visibility or scrutiny uh, is being applied to board members of those respective institutions. Um, so I think uh, maybe my... Um, uh, my next kind of goal in looking at um, advocating for diversity, particularly cultural diversity in the arts, um, will be looking at um, uh, board um, board members and um, I guess the the parameters around uh, who serves and for how long uh, and how those um, those kind of rooms um, can become more accessible to. Um, non-white people. I'll look forward to seeing where that goes. One of the reasons I wanted to uh, mention that was because I did wonder uh, when you uh, won the, the Patrick White Playwriting Award presented by Sydney Theatre Company or administered by Sydney Theatre Company, uh, did anybody at the STC kind of gently say, oh, and by the way, we're still hurt by that report that you wrote a year or two ago? Uh, no, they were um, they were very, very uh, welcoming of me. Um, I, I think it's something that uh, everyone's very, very aware of. Um, and uh, if if the report was critical, I think the main, um, I guess, feedback that I got on that report was that maybe the parameters, if you change the parameters a little bit, it looks a lot better than, than I made it look. But I was trying to be as generous as possible in terms of um, uh, giving, um, making, making it fair um, across the board. Yeah. Kim Ho's play, The Great Australian Play, is on from the 19th to the 29th of February at Theatreworks, 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda, previewing on the 19th of February, which means, uh, kind of, generally means cheaper tickets, but tickets at Theatreworks are now 20 bucks. So they're all 20 bucks. They're all 20 yeah. bucks. So uh, part of the plan of Theatreworks to make theatre more accessible for everyone. So if you've ever occasionally looked at uh, main stage ticket prices and gone, I can't afford... 65 95 120 bucks whatever the price may be for kind of the 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 larger theater productions go along and see some independent theater for 20 bucks uh, at theaterworks as i said the great australian play on from the 19th to the 29th of february theaterworks is located at 14 ackland streets and kilda jump online for more info www.theaterworks.org.au kim it's been absolute pleasure chatting thanks so much for having me richard Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 